Since its early days, Arizona has been heavily involved with grassroots ballot initiatives, and that's still the case, with two more measures going before voters next week. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll talk about the impact of ballot propositions, and we'll speak with a national expert to put Arizona's frequent initiatives into context. Plus, demographics indicate the Republican Party may be facing difficulty in the near future, as some candidates, including Donald Trump, may be alienating Latino voters. But conservative author Donald Critchlow writes in his new book, Future Right, that there are a number of things the GOP can do to stem the tide. I'll talk with him. Also, it's been a slow climb, but many economists think Arizona's economic and fiscal condition is in a pretty good place. I'll talk with one forecaster about what 2017 may hold for the state. And Cuban-born musician Alfredo Rodriguez made the dramatic decision in 2009 to claim political asylum in the U.S. We'll find out about that huge change in his life and his music. Here and Now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, less than a week before Election Day for Propositions 123 and 124, we'll talk about the impact of ballot propositions and direct democracy in Arizona. Also, it's been a slow climb, but many economists think the state's economic and fiscal condition is in a pretty good place. I'll talk with one forecaster about what 2017 may hold for the state. And Cuban-born pianist Alfredo Rodriguez made the dramatic decision in 2009 to claim political asylum in the U.S. He crossed the border from Mexico while on a concert tour with his father. We'll find out about that huge change in his life and his music. We start today's program with what seems to be a growing political divide between Governor Doug Ducey and State Treasurer Jeff DeWitt. A recent Arizona Republic article indicated the disagreement between the two over Prop 123 got personal. So how rare or common is this kind of thing, especially between elected officials from the same party? With me for a few minutes on that is former state lawmaker Stan Barnes, the man behind Copper State Consulting. Stan, good morning. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me on the program. Always good to have you. So we know that DeWitt has already decided not to run for re-election less than halfway through his first term. When he disagreed publicly with Governor Ducey about Prop 123, was he acting like an inexperienced politician? Uh, I, don't, I think the short answer is no. I wouldn't describe it as inexperienced. Um, I would describe it as uh, overreactive and and someone who who did not have a sense that he was going to be a long-term uh, actor on the political stage of Arizona. It's it's not the way uh, grown-ups, statewide elected officials behave with one another in the same party if they are thinking of themselves as uh, a future in that party. So I, it's, it's disappointing to me as... as someone that rides in the center right of Arizona politics as a registered Republican. I don't like seeing that kind of disagreement. It does happen, and and reasonable people can disagree. But the manner of which uh, DeWitt did his disagreeing, I think, uh, didn't suit him very well. Yeah, is this simply, though, the kind of thing that does happen sometimes in a state that, at least for the past number of years, has been dominated at the statewide level by one party? There are bound to be disagreements in some ways. This one, though, seemed to get, at least based on what we've read in the Republic and what we've heard uh, behind the scenes, that really seemed to have gotten personal, at least one side or the other. Yeah, it, it does seem that way. I, I don't know Mr. DeWitt that well. Um, I, I, I know the governor well, and I think the governor has done himself uh, uh, well in, in this little drama behind the curtain. I think he's behaved the way an adult would behave. Um, as far as DeWitt goes, I think he's... He's uh, he's decided that he doesn't have to uh, live under those uh, 
constraints, and I don't think he's helped his cause. And and that's and that's what he ought to understand. Is I have nothing against wit, but in, in the way, if you're actually trying to make something happen, uh, then there are ways to do it that influence people, influence others, bring people to your cause. And I think he he missed all that. It does happen that elected officials in the same party have uh, shouting matches or what have you uh, out of sight. I mean, that's a natural occurrence in in a room full of uh, people with big egos and big titles. But the way it spilled out into the public air uh, just wasn't healthy for the Republican thing. Well, so is this something that going forward is going to have any significant impact on how people feel about the governor. Certainly, it, it has affected how people feel about Jeff DeWitt, even based on what you're saying there. I mean, I, I kind of, I want to sort of speak for, I'm, I'm not sure the voting public wants me to speak for them, but I wonder, if, is, there a, uh, is there a dynamic there where it is, it makes it feel more real, uh, because a lot of people just don't seem to, to like politics, the give and take and the compromises and whatnot. So are, is this good for the voting public to see that someone, even if he's doing it in a way that may not advance his cause, seems pretty honest and straightforward? Yeah. Yeah, and and okay, now you've you've taken us into the the new political order of of the the way Donald Trump himself has behaved on the national stage. It's probably no coincidence that uh, Mr. Dewitt is uh, leading uh, Trump's effort in Arizona. I think it's going to become it's going to become more common, particularly if Donald Trump becomes president. Uh, he's changed the uh, the dynamic of how elected officials get along out in the open um and and there's there's a lot more of of making it personal and uh being uh turned up on volume a bit and uh i mean I, who knows maybe maybe the treasurer uh is on to something in the way of influencing uh voters that actually show up at the polls but he's he's certainly drafting in that same Donald Trump style here as treasurer in Arizona Stan, you're an observer of people. Do voters have expectations that they want their elected officials to get along better than maybe we'd expect of ourselves who aren't in politics? I think so. I mean, it, it's kind of a romantic notion of, of I think, of, of Americans and, of course, Arizonans that that our politicians are, are supposed to be above that kind of spitballing that they are uh, supposed to be thoughtful and, and supposed to be measured and supposed to use uh, words instead of uh, of uh, insults. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, sometimes it just doesn't happen that way because of, of factors of personality and passions. And let's also say that this particular issue, I think the governor has put a lot into. I think he's got a lot of his reputation on on Proposition 123. And and uh, I hope it passes. I voted for it, and I think it's a good deal for Arizona. But I think from from a raw political uh, sense, I think the governor has got a lot of his own political capital on this, and and that you know that that makes it a more important thing. It also makes it uh, easy to swing at if you're not in the same boat with the governor. You know that you can impact him emotionally if you're swinging at at um, one of his favorite propositions. Former state lawmaker Stan Barnes, the man behind Copper State Consulting. Stan, thanks for fitting us in. Hey, you're welcome, Steve. Thanks. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. 
It's been a slow climb, but many economists think Arizona's economic and fiscal state are in a pretty good place, and 2016-17 is expected to improve on that. This morning, the W.P. Carey School of ASU is unveiling its economic outlook, and economist Dennis Hoffman is one of the presenters. Dennis, you're focused on the national economy in your presentation. What's the outlook beyond Arizona? We've got some real headwinds for the overall economy, the nation's economy, and they they come from the logical places. The oil patch is is really left a mark. And it's especially um, important to think about because oil and investments in oil and commodities have fueled a lot of the upturn that we've seen over the last several years. So we're not getting any tailwind from that at all, and now we're getting headwinds. So that's really what the nation's going to struggle with. At the same time, the job picture uh, will be good, and I think that we're going to see increasing signs of uh, wage-generated inflation as we go through the year. And that will, be, uh, that, that will certainly be different than what we've, we've seen in the past. So all in all, kind of a same old, same old year for, for the nation. Um, but Arizona, I believe, will actually do uh, a bit better in contrast to the last several years when Arizona's lagged the nation. I think you're going to see Arizona as a leader. Well, a lot of people would say it's about time because uh, we've, all, we've often heard, you and I have discussed this as well, that out of previous recessions, Arizona usually came bouncing back, and it's been, it's been a slow recovery here. What are it some of the signs you think? It has been a very, very right. slow recovery, um, but a lot of signs of improvement. Um, my, uh, my colleague, uh, Lee McFeeters, reported that... Uh, we're seeing uh, uh, Arizona at, get this, number one in the nation in private sector job growth, uh, say, year over year. Wow. We lead the nation in private job growth. Uh, overall, we're doing quite well as well. Um, pulled back a little bit by uh, mediocre growth in, in terms of our government sector. But nonetheless, uh, you know, things getting much, much better in Arizona Although we were pretty optimistic last year, we've got to, you know, when you get it right, you got to brag a little bit, Steve. We were very upbeat at this uh, uh, event last year, and uh, the, the forecast really came, kind of came through on the mark, and we're, we're seeing improvement over that uh, for 16 and 17. Now, Dennis, you know there are some critics, though, who are going to say that when the downturn was, was going, that some Arizonans, uh, some economists, some otherwise were a little bit too optimistic. I guess I think about the diversity of of jobs and this idea that we're going to make our industries more diverse. Are we moving in a, in a direction like that? So let's say even if, if 16, 17 goes well, there's a reason to think 17, 18, 18, 19 might, might be good as well. So you, uh, you won't let me get out of the label of being the dismal scientist here, Steve, <laughs> by the lead with that question. But uh, there are some concerns out there, absolutely. If you look at uh, the overall economy, um, you know, we're not doing well in, say, broad prosperity metrics in terms of, uh, say, per capita personal income. Uh, it's, a, it's a laggard. Uh, our poverty, poverty rates are not improving uh, much. In terms of diversification of the economy, which is uh, your overall question, we, we're really growing in the service area, um, financial services. We're growing in health uh, services, uh, business professional services, Contracting, of course, is coming back. The challenge that we face, and many, many um, economies across the nation face, is that the jobs that are being created today are very much unlike jobs that were created uh, in previous decades. Gone 
is uh, the old standard uh, high-paying um, uh, manufacturing job that always came with steady increases uh, in steps and in cost of living adjustments and benefits and, and things that that people that were ready and willing to simply roll up their sleeves and work hard were rewarded with these particular jobs. It's a much more competitive labor market, a labor market that requires people to be dynamic, uh, acquiring different skills uh, through time, managing themselves uh, through business cycles, leaping from one job uh, to the other because of changes in technology in their particular uh, area. And the, the pressures out there really uh, relate to, um, frankly, the fact that that businesses are not investing uh, in places where they're expanding and requiring more people. The investments that are taking place are very much labor-saving. I want to make sure we don't skip the industry that has driven Arizona or did drive the Valley for a very long time, which is the real estate market, which is housing. Uh, Elliot Pollock's going to be making the, the presentation when it relates to that. What does housing look like going forward? Is this well? Housing, uh, Elliot uh, has used the phrase uh, this winter. Uh, you know, it's springtime for housing in in Arizona, and by that I think he means that uh, we're, we're certainly improving. You know, on the order of twenty thousand uh, new building permits this year, which is up considerably from the depths of the Great Recession, but nowhere near the numbers in two thousand and five and two thousand and six. So, I think the good news on housing is really twofold: a, it's improving and it's uh, improving at a pace. I think that's going to employ seven, eight percent more people in uh, in contracting uh, this particular year. But the, the second aspect, I think, of this improvement is it's really coming at a very measured pace, which unlike our boom-bust cycles of the past, when housing was up, it was really up. And when, of course, it's down, it's, it's non-existent. Uh, perhaps this measured pace that we're seeing in terms of uh, the real estate and housing sector uh, will be more sustainable as we go forward. Economist Dennis Hoffman, we've been talking about the economic outlook from the W.P. Carey School. Dennis, thank you. Steve, great to be with you. Have a great day. And up next on Here and Now, we'll talk about ballot propositions and their history in Arizona and across the country. And then later, we'll talk about the Phoenix Mercury. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Citizens Clean Elections Commission, reminding voters of the special election May 17th, polling locations, what to bring to the polls, and what's on the ballot at azcleanelections.gov slash special election. This is KJZZ's Here and Now at 91.5 KJZZ.org and on our mobile app. Stay with us today at 1 for BBC NewsHour. Well, a sunny morning over most of the state at this hour. 83 degrees in Tucson. It's 84 in Casa Grande. 70 right now in Prescott. 64 degrees in Flagstaff and 85 in Yuma. Taking a look at valley traffic right now. I-10, the westbound on-ramp at 35th Avenue is restricted. On the Loop 101, a collision on the southbound Bell Road on-ramp.
Did you know that you can turn your car, truck, or boat into something that you really want? When you donate your vehicle, you'll make it possible for KJZZ's local reporters to cover everything that's important to you and your community. Donating your car, truck, or boat is easy. Just go to cars.kjzz.org. Right now in Phoenix, with 20% relative humidity, we have partly cloudy skies and 85 degrees at 1122. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. Next Tuesday is scheduled to be a special election day in Arizona, with voters deciding on Propositions 123 and 124. Though it's not typical for statewide votes to be held in May, it is common for Arizona ballots to have a significant number of initiatives. Some come from the legislature, others through grassroots efforts. We're going to talk about the impact of ballot measures in Arizona and get some context on how common or uncommon it is for proposed policy shifts to go to voters across the country. With me is Tom Riley, director of the Morrison Institute for Public Policy at ASU. Tom, let's get some of our terms right, because I'm using things interchangeably as far as referendum, initiative. Give us the definition on some of these. Sure. Well, you know, since statehood in 1912, Arizona has been among the nation's leaders in using the initiative process to either adopt a statute or amend the Constitution by placing the measure on the ballot, which is known as as a form of direct democracy. So nationally, we're in the United States, we have a form of representative democracy where citizens elect their um, elected officials and, and they draft laws and change the Constitution. Um, but there's been three really powerful instruments or devices, a form of direct democracy known as the initiative, the referendum, and the recall. And they're mostly prevalent in the Western states. Um, but just for definition purposes, an initiative enables people or citizens to get around the legislature that refuses to take a certain course of action. So voters may use it to create a new law or statute or to actually amend the state constitution. Now, a veto referendum empowers voters to challenge something that the legislature has already done. And then the recall allows voters to remove elected officials from office prior to their expiration of their terms. And all three of these forms or devices of direct democracy are present in Arizona. Um, In fact, Arizona is one of the eight most favorable states for direct democracy. That's Tom Riley, director of the Morrison Institute for Public Policy. Now joining us by phone is Jan Matsusaka, executive director of the Initiative and Referendum Institute at the University of Southern California. John, thanks for being with us. Steve, thank you for having me on. You know, John, we were just discussing, Tom was bringing up the idea of, of how prevalent this is in Arizona, and it certainly seems to be prevalent more in Western states, this idea of direct democracy. What explains that? Is there an explanation? Well, there's some conjectures about why direct democracy is more popular in the West. It, it, is, it certainly is more popular in the West. West of the Mississippi, almost every state has it. There are some states in the East that have it, though, Arkansas, Florida, Massachusetts, and so forth. The best guess that I like is that what brought these, what brought initiatives to these states in the first place was the progressive movement, when people were very unhappy with their governments and they tried to change the way things are. And the Western states had very, um, not very well-developed governmental structures, so they were easy for reformers to, to get a hold of and change, whereas in Eastern states it was, it was hard to do that. And then once it got laid down on the ground in that way, it just became used more often, became part of the culture. Now, for both of you, John, let me start with you. Um, I guess we can't absolutely document this, but it does seem like the idea of direct democracy does give voters more power. And I'm not sure if we've actually seen that in the results, but is that something, does that cause any sort of wedge between voters and the, the people they elect to represent them? 
Well, it's, it, it's intended to give voters more power. Um, the, the direct democracy is somewhat controversial, but it's, it's intended to give voters more power, and it's really intended to give them more power out of recognition of the notion that sometimes elected officials, for one reason or another, don't do exactly what the voters want them to do. Maybe they're, you know, maybe they're headstrong and they're going their own way, or maybe they're, you know, influenced by a special interest. And so there's an inherent tension in the whole process. It really is designed to give the voters a way to. To, to control their representatives when that when that doesn't work. It, it doesn't mean it's trying to override or overthrow representative government, but I'd like to think of it as something you would add on to your representative structure, maybe to make it a little bit better. And Tom, what are your thoughts, especially considering Props 123 and 124 were referred by the legislature? They have to change the state constitution. Yeah, so they're, they're a little dis- that didn't originate with uh, citizens, like um, we'll have several on our next uh, general election. But the reason these are coming to the vote of the people, one, two, three, which deals with um, state land trust and education, and one, two, four, that deals with pensions for police and firemen, is that it requires a change of the Constitution. Now, citizens could also change the Constitution and, 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 and uh, collect signatures and get enough signatures on the ballot. Um, but in this case, the, the legislature's um, required to have voter-approved change to the Constitution. When you mention the signatures, it gets me to the question of paid gatherers. That's been a controversy as well. How significant is that to talk about? It is. It's been a controversial issue, not only in Arizona, but elsewhere. So if we just look at the threshold, I mean, the the biggest challenge of getting an initiative to uh, a vote is actually getting the signatures. And historically, they've always relied on volunteers in order to get this. Whereas the states have grown and the complexity of issues uh, the need for uh, paid uh, signatures or paying people in order to get collect signatures has become much more uh, common. But just to give what the threshold is, is that to, to initiate a state chat, uh, state change in the statute, you need about 10% of the um, uh, previous uh, uh, gubernatorial or those that voted for the governor in the previous election. If you're going to look at if citizens want to change the Constitution, we're at 15%. If you're looking at a voter re- referendum, it's only five. But if you're looking at a recall, it's 25 percent. So there's different uh, per- percentages that are needed there. Um, many states uh, initially tried to um, uh, prohibit uh, having paid uh, individuals collect signatures, particularly in states like Arizona, where they're actually paid by the number of signatures they collect. So the thought was that if you're getting paid, then you're perhaps you know messing with the process. Although research really hasn't uh, yeah. uh, played it out. But actually the Supreme Court in 1988 um, basically ruled that it was unconstitutional um, infringement upon the First Amendment in order to prohibit paid signatures. John, is that something that's coming up nationally as well, this idea of, of who's gathering the signatures and, and how they're being compensated or not? It, this has always been an, an issue. And, it, you know, the process is trying to maintain a grassroots feel to it. So the idea is you want you want the people to have uh, a way to act against the, the interest, if, if you will. And so I think everybody's uncomfortable if, if money can buy access to the ballot. But it's really interesting. If you go back and you read pamphlets from uh, from 1910s or even 1905 in, in, in Oregon and so forth, you'll find the use of paid signature, uh, paid uh, petitioners, even back then. So, so this has been something that's been around for a long time, I, I think, in a 
uh, uh, it's always been controversial even even back then, but it seems like it's just the way you, you, you do business right now. The types of controversies that you'll see now, as, as Thomas just said, the Supreme Court has said you, you're allowed to pay people. Some of the controversies now are, are you allowed to pay people by the signature or do you have to pay them a flat rate? So, so the controversies tend to be more in terms of the, the precise details of those arrangements. It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, along with John Matsusaka, Executive Director of the Initiative and Referendum Institute at USC. And with me in studio is Tom Riley, Director of the Morrison Institute for Public Policy. John, I want to have you chime in about this. Um, There are some who've expressed concern about this idea that initiatives seem to go from state to state. Um, We're seeing it in some cases with legalization of marijuana. There are certainly other examples as well. Is that good for a democracy, this idea that that a group decides we're going to start in this state and then if it succeeds here, we're going to go to the next state and so on? So I like to think of those people as policy entrepreneurs and they have (laughs) ideas. You know, they have ideas of things that they think is a good idea. They think the world would be better and the country would be better if we had the the policy uh, of some sort of policy. And they go to the legislature first because it's easier and they don't get any traction. And so what's nice about the initiative is let them put their idea before the public. And if the public says no, then they go away. That's what happens. Most most initiatives fail. They, they, they don't get any traction. But once in a while, this seems like an issue catches on and the voters go, actually, this is a good idea. And the representatives uh, look at it and they go, oh, we didn't realize people were interested in that idea. And so I, I think it's a healthy uh, way to, uh, to run democracy, to let there be opportunities for, for ideas to Tom, what are your thoughts on that? The voters can always say no. Well, I, I think the, you know the other aspect of that is also um, you know depending upon how many initiatives you have on a ballot, um, and the complexity uh, and the competing sides on each side is that are uh, voters able to weigh through the complexity of, of voter uh, uh, ballot questions, uh, particularly when there's campaigns on both sides, to be able to make informed decisions. Just from some historical stuff in in Arizona, if we look between 1996. In 2014, there were 107 ballot measures in Arizona. Um, so from 1996 to 2014, the numbers per ballot range from 3 to 19. Um, interesting enough, about 55% of those were approved, 44% were defeated. But, you know, as, as I mentioned, the issues of you having multiple ballot questions, and this is really common, for example, in California, and there's a lot of complexity around it, you, you, you really, and you're having campaigns on both sides, you know, voters a lot of times are, are confused. And, and so one thing that we've been uh, experimenting with is something called the Citizens Initiative Review, which uh, is a program where we randomly select and uh, look at a demographically balanced group of registered voters to study initiative measures of the ballot. So the citizens will actually spend several days listening to arguments for and against, very similar to what legislators do, uh, and then make um, statements mm-hmm. about each of the sides, you know, based upon the experts and, and, and this deliberative process. Uh, we're working with the Secretary of State's office and Clean Elections to actually um, uh, publish those results. So it provides another avenue for individuals to get accurate information. If I could, one other thing is that, for example, the first one we experimented with was the pension reform issue in the city of Phoenix. Now, unless it's your own retirement system, it can be very complex, whether it's a defined contribution, defined benefit. So, you know, having this deliberative process and explaining it is very useful for citizens. John, can you chime in on that as well? I'm curious what your thoughts are about this idea of how much pressure should voters take upon themselves? I mean, it it does seem like some of these initiatives and and, uh, measures are pretty complicated, um, and it might be hard for voters to trust one side or the other. How much digging should we expect voters to do? 
Well, I think you're exactly right. The, the, the system depends on the voters being informed, and if they're not informed, then the system breaks down. Just, just kind of as an, as an aside, Arizona has a fair amount of, of initiatives, but they're by far the, they're by far the, uh, the, the most active user. Uh, they're, I counted up their number six uh, historically in, in number of initiatives, and, and you guys don't have enormous ballots. California had a ballot once with 45 measures, uh, excuse me, 48 measures on it, so just, so just imagine that. Um, <laughs> um, so it puts a lot of pressure on the voters, and of course the system doesn't work if the voters aren't informed. Um, now, we are putting a lot of pressure on voters already because most ballots in most states have long lists of candidates that voters have to sift through, and some of them are very obscure races. I, I think that part of the answer of having a good outcome is to make sure that both sides get to make their arguments uh, in whatever venue they do. So, so it's very one-sided spending makes me very nervous. It, two-sided means that the arguments got out. I think things like CIR that Tom's talking about are great ideas as well. Uh, newspaper endorsements, any, any types of things that can help the voters penetrate through and get some information about what's in their interest is, is good. The, the evidence suggests voters are pretty good at doing this, actually. They, they, they can't answer detailed questions about the propositions, but they seem to be able to find their way to vote their interest in most cases. Tom, we just have about 30 seconds left. Final thoughts? Yeah, I think that uh, direct democracy aspects are here to stay, definitely in Arizona and out west. So I think that the more we can inform citizens uh, about the initiatives and provide access so they can get um, accurate information to be able to weigh the complexities of them, the better we are. Tom Riley is director of the Morrison Institute for Public Policy at ASU. Also with us was John Matsusaka, executive director of the Initiative and Referendum Institute at the University of Southern California. Thank you both for the conversation. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. In Phoenix, I'm Steve Goldstein. It's a presidential election year, so we're in the midst of hearing polls on who the favorite is, what their positive and negative ratings are, and how big an impact the nominee at the top of the ticket can have on every other race, including congressional and legislative battles. But there are greater discussions as well about whether trends are favorable to either Democrats or Republicans more generally, and whether either party stands to dominate future elections in a broader way. In his new book, Future Right?, ASU professor Donald Critchlow writes about ideas he thinks would favor a future Republican majority, and he joins me now to talk about that. Do you think the ideas you write about will take multiple generations to shift certain groups to favor the Republican Party, or is this a relatively quick move? I think in the uh, short term, and for this campaign, uh, Trump or the Republicans, in order to uh, win, are going to have to uh, win specifically uh, women. Uh, white women, just not married women, and that means uh, winning the, uh, the suburbs. But in the long run, I think for the Republican Party to be viable, and this is what I uh, strategize in Future Right, mm-hmm. is that the uh, Republicans are going to have to uh, win uh, women, and they're going to have to win uh, millennials, and they're going to have to win uh, minorities, uh, specifically uh, Hispanics. Perception drives the narrative often when it comes to these things. And I think for some millennials, at least, I obviously haven't talked to all of them, no one has, <laughs> um, some Latino voters as well, there's a perception at least that some Republicans are trying to suppress the vote. Is part of what you're talking about in Future Right this idea of making, not making them believe, actually believing that Republicans, that conservatives are have the good ideas and also are willing to implement them for everybody? If you look at all of these uh, groups, the major issues that concern voters are job creation, health care, 
education and uh, national security has risen a little bit higher on the polls. But in the end, I think that's how you have to uh, capture uh, voters is on uh, job creation. So the Republicans need to show that uh, that they have uh, they have a uh, that they're a party of reform, and that they're part they're a party of inclusion. And I think they've uh, done this as was seen in the last midterm elections. Actually, uh, George W. Bush, when he ran for re-election, mm-hmm. uh, got over forty percent of the Hispanic vote. The idea that you need to uh, that they could write off the Hispanic vote, which I don't think any Republican is really trying to do, uh, that is intentionally, uh, is uh, mistaken. But I do think that the key is really having a positive message of being a party of Mm -hmm. inclusion and that you're a party of uh, reform, that business as usual just cannot stay uh, the way it is. Your point about President Bush is interesting because one of the issues that came to me a lot when I thought about him when it comes to attracting Latino votes had to do with immigration reform. Does the Republican leadership have to look like a leadership that is less ideological and more practical? Does that matter? Yeah, one of the problems with uh, immigration reform is that you have a sizable uh, number of grassroots uh, activists out there who are uh, uh, for, for controlling our borders. And I think every most people, most Republicans anyway, understand that we need to uh, control our borders. But then you have a problem of what to do with 11 million uh, uh, undocumented workers in this country. And so there needs to be, uh, in my view, a legal uh, status, as well as uh, programs, guest worker programs, and so forth. I recently was interviewed in National Review, and uh, I made these uh, comments, and uh, and I got uh, a flood of uh, pretty nasty, uh, nasty mail. But in the end, you know, we need to think about uh, how we're going to govern, and the Republicans need to convey this, that they're a party that knows how to govern uh, this uh, country with very diverse uh, interests. But in the end, we need to understand that we're, uh, we're a nation and that we have uh, major problems that we're uh, confronting, not only with immigration, but with the economy, which is undergoing an economic transformation Mm -hmm. of great magnitude, historic magnitude, as well as uh, pressing problems with national debt and and stakes that are headed toward uh, bankruptcy as well. So, and on top of this, we are also living in a dangerous uh, world. So we need to uh, step back uh, and consider this as a, as a nation and an electorate about where we're uh, headed, headed as a country. Do you think the country needs shaking up in a way? Or because a lot of people will say, well, we need the, we need the parties to work together better and that'll solve it as opposed to dramatic change. The key is that we're the founders set up a government that was going to have a balance of power and there was going to be necessary necessary compromise. But compromise for itself is, uh, is, 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 is not enough. There needs to be uh, principled uh, compromise. 
and there needs to be a decision by our elected representatives on what issues uh, need to be compromised on in order to pass legislation and which issues that simply cannot be uh, compromised on because they're fundamental uh, core values. Not only does this was the government set up for compromise, but more importantly, much more importantly, there's reality out there. So it's just not a matter of uh, perception. We have serious problems in this, uh, in this country. Uh, and uh, we know what those problems are. We have a failure of the uh, education system. Mm-hmm. Our students are uh, performing uh, poorly uh, against our economic uh, competitors. We're not training a workforce uh, for the 21st century. And uh, we have a a serious decline in civics in our educational system. I do think that that in the end, the American uh, people uh, will confront reality uh, and will face these problems. We've had worse problems than this. We've had a civil war. We've had major economic uh, depressions. In Future Right, you write extensively about how the economy, job creation, these are things that Republican elected officials and Republican movement should be able to, to grab onto. There are people who would argue, and these are certainly not all Democrats, I don't think, who would say that the most prosperous period we've had since Ronald Reagan was under a Democratic president, Bill Clinton. I think too much weight is placed on uh, a president uh, for economic growth. I think the uh, there's a good deal of health in the economy. We have real technological advantage, and now we have energy advantage. Uh, we're going to have cheap uh, en- energy in the foreseeable future, and that's going to lower transportation costs. But we're ahead in, uh, uh, we, we have a lot of wealth, we have a lot of capital, and we're very strong in technology, pharmaceuticals, but we do have uh, advantages against our competitors, and that's technology. And will lower uh, manufacturing costs even more. What it will mean is that there's going to be new job creation for uh, semi-skilled and skilled uh, workers through educational attainment. And, uh, and, and actually, there's good signs on this, especially for, uh, for women. Valley-based author Donald Critchlow. His latest book is called Future Right, Forging a New Republican Majority. And still to come on here and now, we'll hear from Kate Fagan of ESPNW on the Phoenix Mercury and some of the star players who went to Russia in the offseason. And then we'll also hear from Cuban-born musician Alfredo Rodriguez. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Moores and Cabot Investments and D.N. Griebel in their Mesa branch. Moores and Cabot is a 125-year-old national wealth management firm that is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, FINRA, and SIPC. Good morning. You're listening to Here and Now on KJZZ. Taking a look at Valley traffic on I-10, the westbound on-ramp is restricted at 35th Avenue. Well, plenty of sunshine today for the Valley. We're looking for a high near 95 degrees after reaching 91 to 91 yesterday. rather. Lows in the upper 60s overnight and then more sunshine and warmer temperatures for the next couple of days in the Valley. A high of 102 tomorrow and expected 105 by Friday before we cool down a few degrees for the weekend. Stay 
stay with us at 12 for NPR's Here and Now. With the wildfire outside Fort McMurray, Canada, covering more than 620 square miles, some scientists are saying man-made climate change may be one of the factors responsible. And marking the 400th anniversary of the death of Miguel de Cervantes, the author of Don Quixote. Here and Now from Boston starts at noon on KJZZ. Partly cloudy skies, 85 degrees at 1145. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein. The Phoenix Mercury tip off their WNBA season on Saturday with a road contest against the Minnesota Lynx. The Mercury are coming off a good season, but not a championship one. That's due at least in part to former MVP Diana Taurasi deciding not to play in the WNBA last season. Taurasi, who plays part of the year in Russia, determined that her body needed a break from year-round basketball. In her new piece for ESPN The Magazine, Kate Fagan of ESPNW writes about Tarasi and teammate Brittany Griner's experiences in Russia. And Kate Fagan joins me now. Kate, do WNBA stars like Tarasi and Griner play overseas simply because the pay is so much greater than it is in the WNBA? I think what got them over there is the money. And it would be silly to think that they would continue living that lifestyle, which is a very difficult, lonely lifestyle, if it weren't for the huge paychecks that they do draw over there. But it would also be remiss to not point out that their way they're treated over there, I think, leads them to feel like there's finally this place where they're treated like the kind of star basketball players that they see the men treated like back here in the States. So I think there is a bit of like, all right, we're getting big paychecks. On top of that, like they're doing these little things that make us feel wanted and supported. And also for some of them, like especially somebody like Diana Tarazi, who doesn't like being in the everyday constant news cycle, there's something nice about being on such a time change over there that even if you were obsessed with social media, it would be really hard to have it dominate your life. And they do get a bit of a break because of that. Is there anything to indicate to you that the WNBA is getting some kind of a message when you have maybe the greatest player in the history of the league deciding to take a year off in order to make this extra uh, pay from from the Russian team and arrest her body. She's going to come back strong. A lot of people have expectations the Mercury are going to contend for a championship. But is there that dynamic of, I mean, did that make the league look bad, frankly? I think it did um, because I think there's no other league here in the States that we support that is not also the absolute pinnacle of that particular sport. And the WNBA is in a curious position. Nobody would argue that it's not the absolute best women's basketball league in the world because it is. It's the collection of the best few hundred women's basketball players in the world, but it's not economically at the same place that some other leagues are. And so here in the States, it's like, why would the the best player, and you could say Diane Trazzi is certainly in the running for that status, if the best player is being lured by cash to not play in your league, that doesn't look good for the league. And as much as, you know, everyone I talk to within the league is saying, we know we're the premier showcase for women's basketball in the States. And we love that. And we love that our players can supplement their income overseas. I understand that's what they have to say, because there's really very little they can do economically from to offer the kind of contracts that are over there. But I do think that the WNBA has got to get creative with its salary structure. One of the ways in the piece that you broach, at least briefly, this idea of getting more attention for the WNBA is whether controversy is good for the league or, or not. And you had a chance to talk with Diana Taurasi and Brittany Griner about some of their off-the-court um, controversies as well. 
since you posed the question, do you think that could bring more attention to the league? And would it be attention that the league would want? And that's the curious question is this isn't a statement by me that I think, oh, the league needs more villains and they need more like bad girls doing bad things. It's not so much of that as it is a discussion of how in our society throughout the last couple generations, the only stories we've told about women are in this role model framework. Like women's sports, you got to support it because it's the right thing to do. And look, women are such role models. They're going out in the community and there's certainly a place for that storyline. But female athletes are no different than male athletes and all other humans and that they're very complicated and there's all different sides of them. And yet we seem to tell those stories in men's sports, like the redemption story and the sort of gritty three-dimensional type characterizations of some of our male athletes and their flaws. And on the women's side, it's like, it's like we're playing it safe. Like we just want to tell the stories of these positive, good role models. And so what I'm trying to put forth is this idea that one, that a NBA needs more player movement because that that's part of the media cycle is free agents and trades and contracts and rivalries and one player traded for another. And then therefore, when that game's on TV, you're like, oh, we got to tune in because this is the first time they're playing each other. And that kind of stuff is missing from the WNBA on top of this three-dimensional characterization of the female athletes in the WNBA. Kate, I want to close by coming back to your piece for ESPN the magazine as the WNBA season, at least for the Mercury, tips off on Saturday. You have this great line on the piece about not calling Tarasi a mentor, but how big a difference, at least from what you saw and what you've heard, has the relationship between Tarasi and Griner made for Griner? I mean, obviously there's an age difference there. Uh, Griner's issues very, very high profile, not just locally here in Phoenix, but really national. How big a difference has that relationship maybe on and off the court made? It's made a huge difference for Brittany. I know folks in Phoenix who remember her rookie year know that there was a bit of sloppiness that rookie year, right? She wasn't as precise and dedicated as you then saw her come back that second year when I believe the Mercury won the title when Dee was still playing. And a lot of that change and transformation and dedication that Brittany actually came to realize was going to be a necessity if she wanted to be a successful pro athlete came because she was playing with Tarazi and Tarazi has a way of while being very direct in her statements, not necessarily alienating anybody. And you can, I'm hoping that that kind of communication permeates the piece for that I wrote for ESPNW and the mag, because Tarazi is being very direct and her, I think very philosophical about her viewpoint in life, but in, in no time does it seem like she's belittling Brittany or cutting her down. It's very much like a, this is how, I've come to see how you can become the best basketball player and, and how, how it works for me to live life and absorb certain lessons. And Brittany, because she doesn't feel like it's like somebody talking down to her, is just like, oh, this is so cool. Like, I love being near Tarazi and like absorbing all of this. So I think Brittany landing in Phoenix and having Tarazi has been a bit of a key to why she's been so dedicated and, and her game has gotten better every year. Kate Fagan of ESPNW, her piece for ESPN the magazine about Phoenix Mercury stars Diana Taurasi and Brittany Griner is called Lost and Found in Russia. Kate, thanks for squeezing us in. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Cuban-born pianist Alfredo Rodriguez made the dramatic decision in 2009 to claim political asylum in the U.S. He crossed the border from Mexico while on a concert tour with his father. 
Since then, he's worked with legendary producer Quincy Jones, who co-produced Rodriguez's newest album, Tocororo. Rodriguez will be in the Valley on Saturday at the Tempe Center for the Arts, and he's with me now. Alfredo, what does Tocororo mean, uh, and why was the background of that a good fit for your music on this album? Well, Tocororo is um, the national the national bear of Cuba, and um, I feel I have something, uh, a lot of things in common with with the bird, uh, not just because feature my col- culture, but as well as because you know all birds have different uh, different voices as as us as human beings. That maybe the the difference is that they raise their voice or they sing uh, whenever they think. And I think in uh, in a way uh, that is what I what I'm trying to do with my music as well is just a, um, to you know, to you know, to express uh, that desire of, of of liberty, that desire of of, of freedom, uh, in a lot of way that the birds uh, the birds does, and I think uh, the tocor you know the tocororo is the bird that I am representing because I'm Cuban, but I feel that we are many birds as well in this album because we feature artists from from many different cultures, uh, from Lebanon, from France, from Spain, India, Cameroon, United States, and, and Cuba, of course. How would you, as the artist, describe your music and the way that you create it? My music comes from improvising. process of composing uh, music is it comes from just sitting in the piano and playing an idea that comes to my mind that is very simple in a lot of ways as, as well and that is the the most spontaneous way that I find and the the you know the, I think in that way is the best way that I have in order to learn as well just you know like just sitting in the piano and playing anything is it, is like it's it's kind of like the same that we that we do in order to keep living every day. You know, we have to improvise with our lives every day. We have to make decisions, and and it's the same with music. So I guess I I just want to keep it in this way because it feels honest honest to uh, to myself. And and yeah, that's the way I do it. <laughs> I presume everyone listening to this interview knows who Quincy Jones is, uh, and you've been working with him for quite a while. What did he tell you about why he wanted to work with you? open-minded um, musician and human being in general um, first piece of advice that he gave me was just to follow my dreams uh, to f- follow my to be honest with myself which is what I what I'm trying to do you know and, and 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 coming from someone that I admire so much and have so much experience not just musically talking uh, is something very powerful and important for me. I guess we all, as human beings, have, have something very special to say, and we we have something special to share with each other. And I guess trying to find that is the purpose of life. And I am I am on my way. <laughs> I am on my way, and I hope it will be like this forever because it would means that I am learning all the time and changing all the time, which is something very important for me. Well, what does it mean to you, if you could describe it, to be honest with your music? What does that mean to you as an artist? Just uh, do something that you feel it and 
and try to forget about everything else that in our lives. You know, we we as human we are living in a society that with so many contradictions and so many things that can affect uh, your honesty. And uh, I think um, when you sit in the piano, well, this is what I do. When when I sit in the piano, I just when I sit, when I say that I have you know just being myself. The purpose of life in general, just just to be happy and and to and and that is what I find when I'm when I'm in the piano. It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with Alfredo Rodriguez. He'll be in the Valley on Saturday at the Tempe Center for the Arts. Alfred, I wonder if you would mind telling us the story of claiming political asylum in the U.S. Uh, as I understand it, you were on a tour of Mexico with your father. Did you know? Yeah, adva- that is correct. Did you know in advance you were going to to do that, and did your dad know you're going to do that? Yes. Well, uh, at first, you know that is a very difficult decision. Even though, even though you know that you want to do it, is something that you know it's it's about the moment. Uh, it's like improvising again. You know, it's, it's something that you have to decide at the moment. And and I and I and my parents knew that I wanted to do it and. Why I did it, you know, many many reasons. First of all, I wanted to go out of Cuba, meet different people, meet different culture, and live something different in my life, and share my music with more more people, which was one of the first, one of the most important things for me. And I couldn't have that much of opportunity while I was in Cuba, so I decided to come here to the United States uh, to do that. But as well, I. I met Quincy in 2006 in, in Switzerland while I was playing at the Montreal Festival. And he said to myself that he wanted to help me in my career. And, you know, as, as you know, the political situation between Cuba and the United States for so many years has been falling apart. So uh, we tried to do something together, but it was impossible for us. Uh, and that is why I, while I was playing with my dad in Mexico in 2009, uh, I decided to to make the decision to cross the border from Mexico to the United States and start a new a new life uh, for myself. And, and that is basically what, what happened. Now, there have been some major changes that President Obama is trying to make in the relationship between the U.S. and Cuba. Has that affected you at all intellectually or emotionally? I mean, is there a feeling that, that maybe you could go back to Cuba to, to visit? Would you want to? Since I came here to the United States, I've been there uh, visiting my family and what I'm really uh, concerned is that uh, I still cannot live anymore in my country, even though I was born there. Uh, or there are other many, many other things that I, I believe it has to change for me to start saying that the Cuban people uh, we're having what um, what we deserve for me in order to call freedom. This is the moment that we can raise our voice and say what we think about what is happening and. and and I hope it's something that really that really happens. And and and, and I, you know, again, as I said, this is just the beginning of of a change. Cuban-born musician Alfredo Rodriguez will be in the Valley on Saturday at the Tempe Center for the Arts.
And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their assistance on the program. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear my conversations with Kate Fagan or Alfredo Rodriguez or a discussion about ballot measures in Arizona and across the country or even one of our previous programs, please go online to kjzz.org later this afternoon. You can also download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. NPR's Here and Now is next on member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great afternoon. It's 12 o'clock.